chapter 11 this evening, uh, a passage of, of scripture that I'm sure you're very familiar with. We teach from it quite a bit and refer to it even more. Beginning in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 12, it says, And on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. It's, uh, King James is a little confusing for us in this. Fig trees produce fruit and leaves at the same time. So when the leaves are green and uh, the tree is full, uh, with leaves that is, then the expectation is that figs will be there too, but there weren't any. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Now skip down with me to verse 20. And in the morning, meaning the next morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. Now this, uh, there are different ways that different translations uh, record this. Some say have the faith of God. Um, we coined the phrase have the God kind of faith, which is the only kind of faith that God would have, I guess. But I want to ask you a question before we get further in uh, uh, the next couple of verses where Jesus defines what faith is and how it works and so forth. I want to ask you a question. This uh, um, event takes place about five days before Jesus is crucified. It's the last week of his life. And one of the things that strikes me as interesting about this is that the Gospels cover about a three-year period of time that Jesus ministered on the earth. After three years of being with Jesus, why in the world are they having to ask how something took place? As I said, the Gospels cover about a three-year period of time. But if you separate the events that are identified, and remember John said, if the, everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. If you look at the four Gospels and break them down as far as time is concerned, they cover a period of time that's less than two months. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Gospels only cover the last two months of his life or something like that. What I'm trying to get across is the events that are identified, and many times you'll read in the Gospels, and the next day something happened. Or following that, something else happened. It's giving us about, uh, well, it's, like I said, it's less than two months, less than 60 days worth of time that these things happened. It's not like these are stenographers walking around with Jesus taking notes on everything that he did. There is a very small, small, small amount of what Jesus did and what, uh, uh, what he said that's been recorded in the Gospels. It's just a sliver of what happened throughout the entirety of the three years. So even though they cover a three-year period of time, they just tell us about something like 40 days, 45 days maybe, of things that happened in Jesus' ministry. Now with that in mind, the disciples have certainly been exposed to faith up before that time, before this time in Mark chapter 11. Certainly they've been exposed we know that Jesus sent him out to preach the gospel of the kingdom and heal the sick while he was still here on the earth. Clearly, he did not tell them to go teach on faith. 
Because Peter, and, and notice also that there's no question posed by Peter, but there's an implication or an implied question. When Peter says, Master, remember, or look at the fig tree that you cursed yesterday. There's an implied question that Jesus picks up on. Jesus certainly thinks it's a question that's being implied because he explained how it happened. How do these guys get through three years of Jesus' ministry, walking with him, talking with him, seeing all the things that he did, having access to everything that John identifies as too much to keep record of? How do they not know about faith? Are you with me? How do they not know? They've seen Jesus identify faith, or uh, rather he's identified unbelief, the lack of faith, as a key element in different times and uh, situations where the power of God didn't work. For example, it's Mark that tells us that Jesus could in his own hometown of Nazareth do no mighty work because of the unbelief of the people. Well, then they have to have some kind of working knowledge or some kind of understanding of the importance of faith. They certainly have to have some kind of knowledge and experience with the lack of faith, keeping things from happening even though God sent Jesus to do it. Remember in Luke chapter 4, Luke's account of when uh, uh, Jesus was in Nazareth. He stood up in the synagogue and found the place where it was written. We know of it as Isaiah 61. But he found the place where it was written in the prophecy of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. And then he tells what he's anointed to do. He reads it off. It's something that they should have known and many of them may have. He was anointed to heal the brokenhearted, preach the the good news to the poor, teach recovering of sight to the blind, and so forth. He's anointed. He's saying that he's anointed to do these great mighty works, most of them works of healing. And then he tells them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He's identifying himself as being the one that these scriptures are written about. And everybody understood that those scriptures were messianic scriptures, scriptures that pertain to the Messiah, God's gift to the earth. How do these guys not know about faith? Jesus upbraids them for their unbelief on several occasions. He'll do that in about a week from the time this takes place. When after his resurrection, he appears to the disciples and they don't believe what he has said, how he taught them clearly that he's going to Jerusalem to be killed and raised again the third day. How do these guys not know about faith? They've seen the effects of the lack of faith. They've seen situations. It's Mark that tells us in chapter 5 about the woman with the issue of blood. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. She touches his clothes. He feels power go out of him into somebody. She feels power going into her. She feels in her body that she's healed of that plague. And Jesus stops. And remember, he's on the road to Jairus' house. He's on his way to Jairus' house to heal Jairus' daughter. And this event that Jesus takes time for is an interruption in what he was uh, intending to do and what he wound up doing afterwards. He's the one, Jesus is the one that told the woman with the issue of blood, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Do these guys not see and understand anything? How can they not know about faith? Well, let's read a little bit more. I'm going to go back to verse 20. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. 
And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God, or have the faith of God, whichever way you want to say it. And then he describes what that is. He said, For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Then he goes further and tells them how faith works in prayer. Notice verse 23 is just speaking to the problem. He defines faith as the same thing that he did the day before. He spoke to a fig tree that was, should have been producing fruit but wasn't. And he cursed it and said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. He didn't pray. He didn't ask God to do something about the fig tree. His words were the cause of that fig tree drying up and withering overnight. But now he's going to tell us that faith doesn't just work through speaking to your problem. Thank God it works there. But he's, talk, he's going to tell them about how faith works in prayer. Or we might call it the prayer of faith. He identifies and defines the prayer of faith. Verse 24, therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Now I want you to notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus is identifying the foundation, the necessary, the critical foundation stones for changing things in this world. He says, whosoever shall speak unto this mountain or say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Folks, I would submit to you that Jesus says that faith 101 the basic information about faith goes further than most Christians ever attain in their life as far as knowledge is concerned. Jesus is saying right off the bat, you've got to believe that your words will change things. If this thing called faith is going to work for you, you're going to have to believe in the power of your words. He doesn't say a thing about God's will. He doesn't say a thing about God's word. Now we know what they didn't know at the time we know what Paul tells us in Romans ten seventeen. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We know and we understand that faith is based on the promises of God. It's based on what God's word says about any and every situation, about us, about who we are in Christ and so forth. But we still get back to that basic thing. You've got to believe that your words carry power to change things. How many believers do you know that believe that? How many Christians do you know that really believe that to be true? I'm talking about now. I'm talking about today. With the hindsight that we have the benefit of, knowing the letters of Paul, knowing what Peter wrote, knowing what John wrote to us about walking in victory and the provision God's made through the blood of Jesus. We understand and we know a whole lot more looking back than they had the opportunity to know because they would have to look forward. And they didn't get it right. So Jesus says, if faith is going to work for you, if you're going to be able to turn unfruitful circumstances around in your life, and that's what we'd have to identify this to be. Jesus is looking for a tree to supply him food. The tree is bare. So Jesus rebukes and curses the fig tree, the unproductive, the unfruitful tree, and commands it to die. Now, we don't have any problem understanding and believing that Jesus knew his words carry power. 
We get that. But it's so easy to fall back on the, the excuse that, well, Jesus was the Son of God. But Jesus does not say that faith only works for him. He says it works for whosoever shall say. He said it works for whosoever shall say unto the mountain and not doubt in his heart, not change what he's saying. Doubt in the heart could best be identified perhaps as speaking something contrary to what God's word says. Or speaking according to what you see or feel. Speaking according to what you see in this life. Or what your emotions tell you. Or some argument against God's word. Doubt in the heart is the thing that the 12 spies, 10 of the 12 spies entered into because of the walls of Jericho that they saw. They said, we can't do it because of the walls. What was the foundation for them saying they couldn't do it? What they saw. What they saw triggered an emotional reaction for them. They said, we can't do it. Our enemies would defeat us. Be better for us if we just died in the wilderness. And that's exactly what happened. They died in the wilderness. So in that story, just like every other story that the Bible tells us about, everybody involved gets what they say. Jesus said that has to, is to be a foundational understanding and a foundation knowledge for this thing, the operation of this thing called faith. Whosoever shall say. He didn't say it works for me because I'm the son of God, but it won't work for you. He said, whosoever shall say unto the mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and not change his confession, not doubt, not speak contrary to the words that he's uttered to the mountain or the problem of whatever we're speaking to. But instead, believe that what we say will come to pass. Under those conditions, he says, we'll have whatever we say. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, I'm going to assume that everybody's familiar with Ephesians 2.8. If you're not familiar with the reference, I'm, I'm certain that you've heard it quoted or spoken about. This was a scripture that one of the very few scriptures that I learned in the Baptist church. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. So it's telling us, the Bible tells us, that we're saved through this thing called faith. It's the gift of God, it's the grace of God, it's the result of what Jesus did for us and won for us because of his sacrifice. But with that in mind, notice Paul tells us what, how salvation comes. Romans 10, 9, he says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart, talking about the spirit. Remember Jesus said that uh, in Mark eleven twenty three, the criteria was not to doubt in your heart, but believe. Well, if he's talking about not doubting your heart, then he's got to be talking about believing in your heart, right? And again, he's talking about believing from the inner man, the spirit of man. Not according to your senses, your five physical senses. Not according to what you see or feel or feel about it. But believe from your heart. And he goes on to say, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now remember the Bible tells us, we just quoted Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. For by grace are you saved through faith. Paul explains and really defines how your words bring to pass your salvation. And that would have to be true 
Because the Bible tells us, Jesus told us, that faith works by speaking words. Well, that means salvation works by speaking words too, since we're saved by faith. And notice what he said. He said the criteria is that if thou shalt confess the Lord Jesus, or confess Jesus as your Lord. So he's talking about speaking. He's talking about words. He said the first criteria is to confess that Jesus is your Lord. Now please notice that the confession brings salvation. But the confession is made before salvation takes place. So when you confess Jesus as your Lord, when anyone unsaved comes to the altar and gives their heart to Jesus or however it takes place in them. They speak Jesus or confess Jesus as their Savior before he is. And the reason that he does come into their heart and saves them is because their words come to pass. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus or Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Well, how many of us knew that was how it worked before we got saved? I certainly didn't know. I didn't understand the, the necessary role that faith played in getting saved. Thank God I didn't have to. Thank God that's not a requirement to get in the family of God. But he's identifying, Paul's identifying exactly what Jesus said about how faith works. We believe in our heart through the preaching of the gospel some way or another, whether it's in a church service or a crusade or uh, an evangelistic meeting or just friends telling us, trying to share the Lord with us. We come to the understanding that Jesus came to the earth and died on the cross and was raised again from the dead. And that belief, that choice to believe, then leads us to the action that brings the benefit of salvation into our lives. We then confess because of what we believe, because of what we heard preached about Jesus, we then confess or say that Jesus is our Lord. And Paul says, after you do that, thou shalt be saved, which means you can't be saved before you do it. Now, we understand how that works, in part at least. Everybody knows that if somebody will just pray and give their heart to the Lord, and there's a thousand different ways that the church says these things, but we all know that if anybody chooses to believe what the Bible says about Jesus' sacrifice and confess him as their Lord or ask him into their heart, as we are wont to sometimes say, that Jesus will come in and change their lives, make them a new Christian, a new believer rather, a new creature in Christ Jesus, and bring them into his family. We know that's how it works. We base our churches on those things. Salvation is, is dependent on the two legs that Jesus speaks of, believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. But notice that it's words that come to pass. Salvation are the words that you spoke before you were saved in order to be saved. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. In other words, you cannot please God unless you believe something based on the word of God and say it, expecting it to come to pass. Now we think, we meaning the modern day church, most people think that the way we're pleasing to God is that we put away sin, we develop such a strength of character that we always resist temptation. 
and live a righteous life. Well, that's great. I don't know a whole lot of people that get to that place. Do you? And we consider that to be the things that please God. And certainly God is pleased when we resist temptation. But the only way that we come to the ability, gain the ability to resist temptation is through the knowledge of the word. And very rarely do we resist any temptation that we don't speak to first. We found out that our confession is our strength. So if you want to defeat temptation or the temptation to sin in your life in any area, in any regard, speak to it. You want to overcome doubt in your life, speak to it. Because it's your words that carry power. And Jesus said that was the foundation for faith. He goes on, Paul goes on to say in verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. That means believes to become righteous. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So again, same principle. It's a belief in your heart from the knowledge of the word, gained through the knowledge of your word, God's word. And then the action of faith, which is the confession of the mouth. And he said that brings us to this place, this thing, this relationship called salvation. So all the people that are out there criticizing faith preachers and faith teachers did exactly what the faith teachers are teaching in order to become saved. Now it's a sad thing that they say that faith only works in salvation that way. But it doesn't work every other way because Jesus is indicating something to the opposite. He's indicating something very much contrary to that. Notice again in Mark chapter 11, the implied question is, what made this tree die? We heard what you said, but what made this tree die? Folks, if the disciples had any knowledge whatsoever, just a smattering of knowledge about faith and what faith really is, they wouldn't have asked anything. They would have said, look, Jesus, the tree that you cursed is dead. Look at what your words did. But Jesus understands that's not what they're saying because he defines how faith works. What would be his purpose for defining how faith works if they already know what, it, what caused this to take place? There's the implied question again. How did this work? And Jesus explains. When you know the purpose that God put, here, put us here, put mankind on the earth for. That's why we talk so much about being made in the image of God. Let us make man in our own image. Genesis one twenty six says, speaks of God in the, uh, at, the, at creation, during the creation week. Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let him have dominion over the earth and over all the works of our hands. Well, how did God exercise dominion on the earth in creation? He said, God said and it was. He said, let there be light and there was light. He said, let there be dry land and dry land appeared. God is speaking things to become reality before they are reality. So if we're made in the image of God, then that would have to mean that we're supposed to and we're commissioned on this earth to operate the same way God operates. Otherwise, what's the benefit of being like him? Or if God is supposed to act that way, and here's another argument that a lot of people say, yeah, well, that was Jesus or that was God. God can do anything he wants to. But he put man here to be his imitator, to be imitators of God, to exercise authority on the earth just like he exercised authority in the creation of the earth. 
And God said, and it was. And God said, and it was. In Genesis chapter 1, there's 10 times where it tells us God said something and it was. And he put man right down in the middle of this as his son. Adam literally was the son of God. He existed because God breathed into the body that he formed from the dust. He wasn't alive until God breathed his life into him. And then he existed as an eternal spirit. You'd have to say he's God's son. Who else would he be? And he left man here on the earth to operate as his sons and daughters to exercise authority here just the way he does. See, Jesus knows that. And we would expect Jesus to know that. He was the one that did it. He's certainly familiar with what he did. But what about us? He said that we're supposed to operate exactly the same way. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. Again, that means don't say anything to the contrary. But believe in his heart. What are we supposed to believe in our heart when we exercise faith and speak to our problems? Believe in his heart that the words that he says will come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. He shall have whatsoever he saith. This is a principle that never changes. It's a principle that's been from the beginning. You remember the story that we just referred to about when the 12 spies went into the land of Canaan to spy out the land. Ten of them came back with an evil report. They said, we can't do it. The walls are too big around the city. The armies are too great. They've got better weapons than we've got. We can't do it. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, tried to steal the people and said, we can do it. They saw the same things the other ten saw. We saw those walls. We saw the army, the military might of their armies. We saw the same things that they did. But God said he'd send us help. He said that he'd cause us to win and be victorious. God's on our side. So we can do it. In Numbers chapter 14, after the people choose to believe the ten spies instead of the two, God tells Moses to tell the people, as truly as I live, that means this is an eternal principle that never changes. As truly as I live, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. Now, folks, that didn't just work for them. It works for everybody. It didn't just work for them because they made a mistake in choosing to believe what they saw instead of what God said. It's something that works for everybody. It's an unchanging, everlasting principle that's set in the earth. Man has been given authority, so what you say goes for you. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now here's what that means. Here's the bottom line of what that means. That means if we're going to be faith people, if we're going to be pleasing to God by believing what his word says and speaking, to our problems, to our situations, speaking into our own lives, that which we expect to be become physical fact, then that means we're going to have to believe in a spirit realm that's greater than the physical realm. We understand that everything on this earth, everything that we see, everything we can feel, everything we can make contact with, everything was created from an unseen realm through words. Which has to mean 
that the spirit realm is greater than the, than the physical realm. It has to be understood. And again, I understand this is real deep stuff for most Christians. But Jesus says this is foundational truth. This is kindergarten stuff. We have to believe that there's power in the unseen realm. That our word brings to pass. Our words, the words that we speak, the things that we say, brings to pass changes in this physical realm. And that's exactly what Jesus is describing. Exactly what he's describing. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. Maintain his confession. That what he says will come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. He went on in verse 24, Mark 11, verse 24, he said, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. That has to mean, let's say we're praying for healing. This is healing school, so we'll talk about healing specifically. That means if you're going to pray the prayer of faith concerning healing, you have to believe that your healing exists in some form, some greater form in the unseen realm than the sickness in the physical realm. It has to mean that. It has to mean that healing exists in the unseen realm and through our words comes to pass in the physical realm. Well, how can we know what's available for us in the unseen realm? That's what the Word of God's all about, is to tell us what Jesus did and provided for us. The Bible says Jesus took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. Well, where are we healed? We're healed in the spirit realm. That's where the power of God is to bring about physical healing for our bodies. So how do we do that? If Jesus died for us to be well, if God's will is for everybody to be healthy and restored to health, which it is, thank God it is. First Timothy chapter, what is it, chapter 2 verse 4 says God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That word saved is the same word that's translated healed in many occasions. So just as it is God's will for everybody to be saved, it's God's will for everybody to be healed because Jesus' work of salvation procured both salvation for the, body, for the spirit and healing for the physical body. How do we bring those things to pass? Through our words, through the things that we say. Now let me show you this in action. We've already referred to it a little bit, but I want you to see it in, Luke, in uh, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is the story of the woman with the issue of blood. It's an excellent account of how somebody made their faith work. Let's start reading in verse, mm, verse 24. Mark, uh, Mark chapter 5 verse 24. And Jesus went with him, meaning Jairus, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, verse 25, which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse when she had heard of Jesus. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. When she heard of Jesus, this is the foundation of what Jesus is going to call her faith. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind, meaning the crowd, and touched his garment, for she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Notice what she's saying. 
She's saying because Jesus is sent to the earth with healing power. Now, we don't know exactly what she had heard of Jesus, but it has to be something along that line. And the fact that she says, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. That tells me that she heard that Jesus was healing people through the contact with his clothes. If all she had heard about Jesus is that if he'll come to your house, then your servant or your children will be well. If that's all she had heard about Jesus, then that's all she'd have faith for. But the fact that she has faith for being healed by touching his garment means she has heard of others. Has to mean that she has heard of others that received their healing that way. So she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Verse 29, and straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. The word felt is not really the word feel. Now she may have felt. I'm not trying to take it away. But it's literally the word know. She knew in her body that she was healed of that plague. Now was it feelings? Was it uh, some kind of feeling that she had associated with the, uh, the flow of blood, the issue of blood that she'd had for 12 years? Maybe so. But something caused her to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Something caused her to know and accept that things had changed in her body. Just like she said that it would. She said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Well, in her case, that would be for the issue of blood to dry up or cease, right? Notice the next verse in verse 30. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? This word knowing is the same word. It's a different tense. But it's the same word as translated felt in the previous verse. So when she touches Jesus, power goes out of Jesus through his garment into her. Jesus knows the power went out of him. She knows the power went into her to affect the healing for her body. They both knew it. Jesus from the transmitting side, the woman with the issue of blood from the receiving side. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? That's King James English for saying, Everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody that can get close enough to you is touching you and grabbing you. And that's what this crowd is about. That's why it talks about the, the press, the crowd thronging him. Everybody is pushing on him or pushing in toward him to touch. Everybody wants a touch from Jesus. Now, the question that we have to consider, and there's no way we can answer this, but the question we have to consider is what are the other people trying to touch him for? If the woman with the issue of blood heard about Jesus and what she heard about Jesus developed faith for her to come in the, uh, the crowd, make her way into the crowd, and for her it was a dangerous thing because with the, con the condition, the disease that she had, she would be considered unclean just like a leper. And so if she's not letting people know that she's in the condition that she's in, if she was found out, she could have been stoned and killed on the spot. Now maybe since the doctors had done everything they could do and, and didn't provide her any help, she may have been at a place where she was desperate enough not to care. I don't know. I can certainly see that possibility with her. But whatever she heard of Jesus developed enough faith in her heart to say what she would get from him. If I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. 
Well, what's everybody else trying to touch him for? Have they heard something different about Jesus? Are they not also reaching out, trying to grab hold of him for power, for whatever they need? Maybe healing, maybe family situations or whatever. What other reason would there be for everybody to push in on him and try, push into him or toward him and try to touch him? What's that about if they're not trying to get something from him? Why fight the crowd to say that you touched him unless it's going to produce some kind of result? You see the point? So Jesus knows that somebody touched him to receive. But the sad part is everybody in this crowd could have received if they'd had the same faith that she did. If they had taken whatever they heard about Jesus personally as she did, they could have gotten something from him too. Jesus could have walked through the crowd feeling power going out of him to everybody that got close enough to touch him. He could have remarked as to what a wonderful day of healing this was. But it's one person in this crowd. And I don't know how big the crowd is. It says they were thronging Jesus. So that leads me to think that it was more than a dozen or so. That it was some kind of big crowd. That was fighting to get, toward, get, get to him. So that they could touch him. Jesus identified one person that touched him with positive results. Everybody else may have been in just as bad a situation or maybe even a worse situation than the woman with the issue of blood, but they didn't get anything even though they made contact with it. So the disciples say, there's no way we can find out who touched you. But Jesus looked around about to see her that had done this thing. He knows somebody got something and he's going to be able to tell who it is. Well, if you received your healing by touching Jesus' garment, you'd be happy about it, wouldn't you? Especially if you were in her situation where you'd been given up by doctors. Her life changed in an instant. It's not going to be too hard to find who that was. Jesus looked around about to see her that had done this thing, but the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said, notice verse 34, he said, Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be whole of thine plague. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the healing power of God is what made her whole. Isn't that right? Isn't that what she got when she touched Jesus in faith? But Jesus doesn't credit the healing power of God as doing the work. Jesus said it was her faith that activated the power. Now, why would he make a statement like that? Why would he credit her faith? Because the power of God was on Jesus to heal everybody in that crowd. The power of God was on Jesus to heal everybody in any crowd. Yet she was the only one that got results. So he says, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Your faith has made you whole. Now there's a lot of people in the church world, modern day church world, that say that healing's been done away with. God can heal, but he doesn't heal everybody like he did in Jesus' day and so forth. But have you ever heard anybody say that faith's been done away with? No, you haven't. And you never will. And it all goes back to that one scripture we've referred to in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith. See, faith, if faith has been done away with, there is no church. If faith has been done away with, none of us can be saved. If faith died out with the last apostle, like the church says, much of the church says, happened with healing and miracles. Well, if faith was done away with, then nobody's ever been saved since the apostles were on the earth. Well, we know that's not right. 
that doesn't fit the doctrine even of the, the denominational churches. Well, then if Jesus identified the woman's faith as being the agent that made her whole, if her faith made her whole, why won't your faith make you whole? You've heard more about Jesus than she ever heard. You know more about what God has done for us and who we are in Christ than she ever learned before she went to heaven. We know a lot more. And remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The reason we know more is because we've heard more. So we have a much greater opportunity to, to develop a much more mature and a stronger faith than she ever did. So if her faith made her whole, your faith can make you whole. Amen. After church this morning, I was walking down the hall, and uh, there was a guy standing close to where the restrooms were, and I assumed uh, he's leaning up against the, the wall, so I'm assuming he's waiting for his wife or somebody that he came with in the restrooms. And so I'm passing by, so I said hello to him. I'd seen him a couple of times here at the church, but um, not many. I don't know if that's because he's recently begun to come or whether they can only make it, you know, certain times. We've got people that drive a long way to get to church, and that makes it difficult to come all the time. You understand that. But anyway, we was walking, I was walking by, and so I stuck out my hand and said, hello, good morning, whatever. And, uh, and we shook hands. He said hi. And so I started walking back down the hall, continuing to the thing that I was going to. And he stopped and said, uh, called my name. So I turned around, walked back to where he was, only a few steps away. He said, I want to say thank you. I said, what for? He said, I heard you say something about a year ago. So that tells me he's been listening somehow or another, whether TV or online or whatever. He said, I heard you say something about a year ago about the difference between physical facts and spiritual truths. He said, you said, he told me, you said, that the doctors can tell you what the facts are. But there's a greater truth, and that comes from God's Word. He said, I had been diagnosed with cancer. And he said, I let the doctors, took the doc doctor's advice, and they'd run me through a couple of rounds of chemotherapy. He said, I was in the hospital when I heard you say that. He said, I decided right then that I was going to believe in the truth instead of the facts. So next time he saw the doctor, he told the doctor, we're done. Not going to take any more chemotherapy. He said, now here it is a year later. I've been through two PET scans and two CAT scans. I'm not sure what the difference is. I'm sure somebody here knows better than me. But he said, I've been through the, the two, pet, two PET scans and two CAT scans. And he said, I'm completely cancer-free. Now, the doctor thinks the chemotherapy just worked good in the first two rounds. But he said, I know differently. I know that the power of God raised me up. Well, he's doing exactly what Jesus said to do. He came to the place, the understanding, through the preaching of the word, or teaching of the word. I don't preach much, but I usually teach. He understood through the knowledge that gained by God's word that there are powers and forces that are unseen to the natural eye that are greater than and can change the physical facts that exist on this earth, in this realm. Folks, if his faith made him whole, why can't your faith make you whole? He simply used the word and chose to believe it, and now he's cancer-free. 
Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you, Father, that there are spiritual truths that are greater than the physical facts of our lives. And according to your word, faith based upon your word will bring the power that's necessary to bear to change things in our lives just like Jesus changed the situation with the fig tree. So we say, Father, that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. No matter how we feel, no matter what the diagnosis is, we say, based on the word of God, Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes, we are healed. Thank you, Father, that our faith is making us whole. We thank you that our faith is giving substance to our healing, and we thank you that the Lord is raising us up. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.